If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, as you're getting there, I just want to highlight one thing that's coming up soon. You know, our, um, our midweek ministry to adults is called Capshaw Academy, and uh, we have that. That will actually resume on January 12th. What, what it is is a chance for uh, us to get together and look at biblical concepts, to look at the Scriptures, and look at how to distinctly live in a Christian way in a world that is increasingly hostile to the things of God. And so we've covered things like uh, how to resolve conflict biblically and how to understand the Bible and so on. Well, the next uh, class coming up up on January 12th is going to be called Answers for Skeptics, Haters, and Honest Doubters, Cross-Centered Apologetics. So um, uh, hopefully you'll add that to your calendar. You probably read about, and I'm sure you've seen over the last couple years, uh, the number of sort of Christian celebrities pastors and songwriters and musicians and so on who have uh, renounced Christianity and they've said, you know what, all the stuff that I grew up believing, I don't believe it anymore. In fact, there's kind of a, there's a word for that that's become a bit of a household word that's deconstructing your faith. And those, there are those, plenty of those who have taken very public platforms to say, I don't believe any of it uh, anymore. I want to make it clear I'm no longer a Christian. Some, again, have been pastors, musicians, authors. Uh, Again, it's a big deal. And besides those who have, quote, deconstructed, there are also those who are really honest and sincere folks who are saying, you know, I really, really want to believe, and I want so badly to walk with Jesus and to follow Him, but but I can't believe because of blank. Well, we're going to spend 10 weeks in that class looking at the blanks. What are those things that are are in, in... they're causing people to turn away. They're, they're putting up bar- barriers in front of people in terms of their faith. And so we're going to look at all of those. And the goal will be to, to address some of the biggest objections to the Christian faith. So what are those things that you might hear if you share? And maybe you did over Christmas. Maybe you did yesterday. If you shared uh, your faith with a family member, what are those objections that you hear? Again, uh, that'll be coming up on January 12th. So uh, you'll, you'll find out more information soon on how to, you know, where, you know, all the details on that. But this morning, though, we're going to continue with our Advent series called Love Came Down. This is week four of our, in the final week of our Advent series. Here's how the outline has gone so far. In the first week, uh, December 5th, we looked at creation and chaos. So why do we experience hatred and trouble and anger and violence and uh, injustice, all of those things? It's because the world is groaning, waiting for redemption. So that was the first week. The second week, we looked at the promise of the coming one, this one who was foreshadowed and foretold from ages past. And then uh, last week, we looked uh, at the birth of Jesus. What was the significance of the birth of Jesus? And this morning, uh, on the day after Christmas, we're going to look at the visitation. What What does it mean? What's the significance of those who had visited Jesus after he was born? So um, we'll cover Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, Let me just read it all together so we get a sense of it. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So I'm going to get into the text in just a moment, but let me just let me give you let me correct a few uh, what I, I guess I'll call unbiblical notions uh, that we hear around this story. First of all, these weren't kings that came uh, to Jesus. They were they were magi. The, the Greek word magoi. It's plural for magi. It's these weren't royalty. They were not kings. Even though we we sing the song. Uh, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel so far. That was actually, that was written in 1857 to be part of a, a Christmas pageant in New York City. Um, and that's where the, the, this notion that they were kings kind of uh, came about, but they weren't kings. And secondly, there weren't three of them. Um, it is assumed that because there were three gifts, there were three magi, um, but there were probably actually dozens of travelers. We don't know the exact amount. Three lonely travelers, as you're going to hear in just a moment, making their way from what we know as Persia all the way to where Jesus was, that was probably an impossible uh, proposition. So there are probably a lot of people, not just three. And finally, they didn't visit Jesus in a manger on the night he was born. Just about every Christmas play or pageant that I can recall has the, uh, the three magi or wise men leaning over the baby Jesus. But in verse 11, we're told that it was a house that they visited the Magi visited in, so it was probably between a year and a half and two years after Jesus was born. So Jesus was probably a, a toddler at this point, maybe even a two-year-old. And I'm not trying to ruin your favorite Christmas carol. You can you can still you can still sing it, I guess. Um, but maybe you look at more of a sort of a fancy, uh, fictitious song. But um, just know that a good portion of what you may think about this story actually comes from legend and not from the text uh, itself. But there's plenty, of course, in here in the actual Scriptures. First of all, regarding these magi that we just read about, I want to look at their response because it's pretty uh, profound when you consider it. The magi, so this is an interesting bunch. Magi, uh, of course, conjures up the word magic. And these were, these were magicians. These were sorcerers. These were uh, dream interpreters. These were... These were the people who were kind of out there and, and telling dreams and so on. And um, it's, Again, it's the root from which we get magician. These were astrologers and, uh, again, dream catchers. One prominent New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, says, "...the term loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books uh, thought to contain mysterious references to the future and the like." Many were rogues and charlatans. Charlatans, just a, a con man, I guess is a common way to say it. And so they weren't very highly respected people. Um, you look in the scriptures, whenever the scriptures talk about 
uh, astrologers and, and sort of dream catchers and those who are into divination, it's almost always in a very negative sense. And so these were pretty, these were pretty shady characters, frankly. They were part of the uh, Zoroastrian sect. Um, again, just another kind of knock on their character. They were not of uh, the highest regard. They were not good guys. They're, they're, these type of people are hardly ever, if ever, praised in the Scripture. They're condemned in a lot of places and mocked in some places. But here is this group of men, this sort of ragtag group of people, disrespected, misunderstood, and they're out to find Jesus. They were, here's another thing. They were probably, most likely Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They're probably from Persia, modern-day Iraq, we might say, um, or some Arabian desert, but they weren't from Israel. So they're a long way from where Jesus would be born, a long way. Uh, they probably had to travel at, at least a thousand miles to find Jesus. And this would be through, again, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this would be through windy and dark deserts. This would be over mountains and by avoiding cliffs and trekking through water. So this was a very, very arduous journey uh, in, in which they would attract the attention of robbers and thieves and even murderers. So this was a very difficult journey that would have taken many, many months on camelback, probably walking for portions of it, and it was one that could have easily claimed their lives. So it does beg a question, why would they be so inclined, so determined to see this new king? Why would they risk their lives to go find this Jesus? Well, here's the answer. They were searching for true wisdom. True wisdom. In order to be a successful magi, you kind of had to stay one step ahead of everybody else, right? It's kind of like if you do a card trick and everybody knows how it works, nobody is enamored by that. I've got a particular uh, card trick that I do that, and when I do it, I can do it in front of a large group. I can do it in front, I'm not going to do it right now, but I could. And it just, people are amazed by it, seriously. But if I ever do it a second time, I'm always exposed. Somebody always figures it out and it ruins the whole thing. They can't be quiet. They have to share, you know, the secret, right? Well, if, if, if everybody knows the magic trick, then what's the point? So the Magi, they want to stay ahead of the, the hoi polloi, the common people. They want to find, they want to stay and find the newest information. They're really in the search for wisdom. And they think that they're going to find it, true wisdom, in this child who would be king. See, when, when Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C., a great supernova appeared, uh, 44 AD, a supernova, a star that explodes and gives off tremendous light and so on. Um, well, this would, astrologers then would naturally have a field day with this. What is going on? Is this the star? What is the significance of the star? And, and because this happened, this supernova happened when Julius Caesar was assassinated, then philosophers concluded that whenever a king dies or a king is born, the heavens will testify with a grand sign. And so when there was a star of this magnitude, it would attract all kinds of attention. Well, the year that Jesus was born, according to historians, there was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn that appeared as this great heavenly light. Uh, this conjunction uh, happened somewhere, well, actually happened three times that year, in May, October, and November. And astrologers took this as a sign that a king had been born. Now, we can't say if this was, was the star or if it was something else, but it consisted, it's consistent with the star of David that was prophesied in 
Numbers 24, 7, which says this, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, here's what I'm saying. That constellation, that star, that light would have attracted the attention of these magi who were always searching for wisdom. This never-ending pursuit of wisdom would have prompted them to travel this incredible distance. Now, they didn't have all the information that we have, of course, but they were willing to risk everything to find this would-be king. And they found him in the way that the Scriptures describe. Remember, Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, a Jewish people who would go on to reject and ultimately crucify uh, the Lord Jesus. And he wants his audience, when they read his gospel, to realize something very important. And here's what it is. It's our first point this morning. Any earnest, relentless, and fearless pursuit of true wisdom will lead to Jesus Christ. So the search for wisdom, if it's, if it's true, if it's one of integrity, if it's relentless, if it's fearless, it will lead to Jesus Christ. These, again, these magi, this collection of astrologers and magicians and wisdom seekers, they would not stop until they had arrived at Jesus. And when they got there, verse 10 tells us, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, which sounds a bit redundant, doesn't it? It is, in fact, redundant. It's an odd turn of phrase. Um, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I've shared with you before uh, my great struggle at Christmas time, and it's one that I deal with every Christmas morning. I faced it yesterday and actually did better than I, I think I ever have. Uh, my problem has to do with I don't know if it's my facial expression or my affect or, or just my face in general, I don't know. But whatever it is, whenever I open a present, when I ever, whenever I unwrap a gift, the person who gives it to me almost always looks at me and says, you don't like it, do you? And I really have no, I, I have no idea what I do, what I communicate, what I don't communicate. But whatever it is, I do something that communicates like, I don't really like this. I, this is not what I wanted. Right? It's, it's, I don't know. Again, I'm still, I did better yesterday, I think. I think I did better yesterday than I ever have. My daughter gave me a gift, and at first she said, do you really like it? I said, no, I like it, I promise. And, and I think she was persuaded because I did, I did like it. Um, so I could, do, I could jump up and down. I could yell. I could even start crying with joy, and still it's like, I still they don't believe me. But um, there's no mistaking the response of the Magi here. Like, there's no concealing, there's no misunderstanding it. They were, as one commentator puts it, deliriously happy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they even, we'll find out later, verse 11, they fell down and worshipped Jesus. Now, this is pretty fascinating when you consider they'd never seen Jesus perform a single miracle. He's, he's probably two years old. They'd never seen him uh, turn water into wine. They'd never seen him feed uh, thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and fish. They'd never seen him walk on water. They'd never heard him teach. They'd never heard him preach, anything like that. And yet they fall down and they worship him. Incredible. We don't know how, but they knew something. Uh, one New Testament scholar, Matthew Turner, says, how the Magi originally understood that an astral phenomenon signaled prophetic fulfillment and the birth of the Messiah is shrouded in mystery. But in the final analysis, the worship of the Magi is nothing less than a miracle of divine grace. They actually believed that this was the one who was prophesied of old. 
Even though they were pagan Gentiles, they approached this with a level of humility, a level of openness. And because of that, God allowed the reality of who Jesus was to be grasped by by them. When they finally understood who Jesus was, that He's the true wisdom, they worshipped Him. What they recognized was Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom personified. The wisdom they were searching for was right in front of them. Now, they they didn't have 1 Corinthians when they visited Jesus, but here's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness holiness and redemption see the world has a particular way of thinking the world apart from God has a particular quote wisdom we could say a particular philosophy and it's very subtly communicated through Commercials and social media, TikTok, talk shows, sitcoms, movies, values are are communicated. Convictions are espoused. It's not always in your face. Sometimes it is. It's not always in your face, but what it tends to be is what we might call a slow drip. Subtle messages that are that these are the things that really matter in life. Popularity, wealth. The best cars and the best houses and the best watches and the best careers. The world has all kinds of ideologies and philosophies which communicate something like this. You must live your life for you. Your voice must be heard. You must be recognized. Your voice is the one that matters most. You must be true to yourself, whatever that means. This is the message. And then Jesus, who is the true wisdom of God comes along and says, no, in order to gain your life, you actually must lose your life. So against this sort of pursuit of everything that matters and becoming whatever you, you want to be, Jesus says, no, you, you lose your life. When we denounce our love for things, our dependence on our own abilities, our own insights, our own wisdom, and learn to rest in the unconditional love of God in Christ, then we find that we have, actually have everything that we really need. But this is a wisdom that confounds the world. This is the wisdom that the world actually regards as foolishness, right? No, of course, I've got to, my voice has to be heard. Of course, I have to be true to myself. Of course, I have to, to live my life for my own desires. There was, um, in 1992, a guy, Neil, Neil Postman, wrote a book called Technopoly. Now, this is a, it's not a real word, but it's a combined from technology and monopoly. And the point of the book was that, this is 1992, so I think the first time I ever dialed up on internet may have been 1993. So this is before Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, before any of that stuff. So he writes this book and he says that technology is going to drastically change in a way that that we can't even imagine. It's going to change our relationships, the way we search for truth. 
It's going to change the way that we perceive the world and everything around us. It's really a fascinating read, a lot of sort of prescient material for somebody writing way back then. He says that uh, the future impact of technology in our lives, particularly as it relates to politics, art, education, relationships, intelligence, and perceived truth, is going to be such that we actually become slaves to technology. Now, people are, you can debate, we can debate, you know, we can debate the morality, and people do, of technology. Is it good, bad, is it indifferent? And I think the truth, we have to say, it's a, it's a vehicle. There's some good and some bad, right? I mean, I, I saw just the other day watching a movie where a, a mother was reunited with her, uh, the son that she gave up for adoption right after she had him, and this is after like 37 years. And because of Facebook, these two were reunited, and they now have a relationship. And there, there, are, there, are good, there are benefits to technology, but there are also extreme dangers. And I think the scariest thing is the way that values are communicated in such a subtle, almost imperceptible way. We're being told things, we're being taught things, we're being persuaded things. And what we're being persuaded is that significance in life, success, is all about moving up. But Jesus says, paradoxically, success is actually, can you believe it, a downward progression, learning to grow more deeply dependent on God and His grace, less reliant on our own abilities and our own wisdom and our own insights, less needy of the approval of others. But again, this goes against every message or most of the message that we're being subtly bombarded with. And not everyone, of course, is willing to embrace this paradox or seek wisdom in Christ. Most people are content simply being cynical or or self-reliant. In fact, verses 3 and 4 tell us that when Herod heard about the Magi's pursuit of this king, he asked the chief priests and the scribes for the location of the birth. And they answered him from Micah 5.2, where the prophet uh, foretells the location of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem, the land of Judah, So the chief priests were the Sadducees and the scribes were the Pharisees. And these two groups, they didn't get along at all. I mean, they fought over a lot of different things, philosophy, religion, and so on. But here, even though they have a hard time agreeing on most things, they agree on this, the location. They inform Herod what the Scriptures say about where the Messiah would be born. And what do they do about it? This is the fascinating part. What do they do about it? They do nothing. They do nothing. So what stands out here even more than the, than the, we might say, the courageous, brave action of the Magi is actually the inactivity of the religious leaders. The chief priests and the scribes, remember, they spent their whole lives reading the Bible, reading the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, studying, memorizing, committing huge portions that many of us would have no, no possibility of actually memorizing this much. They knew the Scriptures. They studied the law. They understood it well. And yet when they became aware of this majestic star signaling the fulfillment of all the prophecies they committed to memory, they can't even bother to investigate. And they didn't live thousands of miles away like the Magi did. They lived in Jerusalem, which was only about five miles from Bethlehem. But they won't even lace up their sandals to go check things out. Could this be? The fulfillment of prophecy, could this be the long-foretold Messiah? Now, why are, these, why are the Pharisees and the Sadducees so unconcerned? It's because they're too busy doing religious things to worry about a Savior. They're too busy uh, elaborating on every particular conceivable application of the law 
trying to figure out, for example, what's permissible to do if your foot gets stuck in a ditch on the Sabbath. They'd spend all day thinking about this. What do you do if your foot gets stuck in a ditch on the Sabbath? Um, is it lawful to peel an egg on the Sabbath? Hour long, many hour-long debates over this. Can you pick up your child if he falls down on the Sabbath, or is that, does that constitute work? Um, they're too busy keeping every law and tradition and every sort of application thereof to even pursue Jesus. So this is, I think this is a reminder particularly necessary for us during this time of year. It's our second point. Relentless religious activity sometimes hides a heart that is coldly indifferent toward Christ and His salvation. I know a guy that I went to seminary with whose his father-in-law was always at the church building. He was the one who, he was always on lock-up and unlock duty. He was always there, you know, helping and fixing things and whatever. But my friend, his son-in-law, said, you know, my father-in-law, he's always at the church, five days a week. But I've never once heard him say, I'm sorry. I've never once heard him repent. I've never once seen him demonstrate a real active faith in Christ. I mean, this, is, this guy was regarded as the most religious of all people. You, can, you go to the church building, you're going to find Joe. He's there. He's always doing something. How easy is it to get caught up in doing things rather than actually being with God? How much easier is it to place our confidence in what we've accomplished, what we've done, our good works, what we've studied, what we've written, whatever, than to admit that we're helpless and in desperate need of a Savior? The, the religious person tires of hearing the gospel. The religious person gets so tired of hearing the gospel week in and week out because he or she wants something that, that they can do. Give me, give me something that I can do because then I can check that off my list. I can feel better about myself. I can go to God with my list of accomplishments. The gospel reveals what my real problem is. My sin, my rebellion, my idolatry, my self-centeredness, my pride, and God's saving grace and His mercy and love. I'd much rather you give me something to do than tell me that I can't do anything to save myself because then you're taking the control away from me. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Reading the Bible, yeah, that's a good thing. A necessary thing. Serving in church, leading a ministry, participating, working in the nursery, ministering to children, sharing your faith. All of those things are very, very good things and very necessary things. But we can get caught up in doing all of those things and never actually deal with the problem in our own heart. See, not only is it possible to be very religious and still be completely outside of Christ, thereby making religious religion a sham, but it's possible for, for religion to blind us of our need for Christ, thereby making religion actually dangerous. The great Puritan John Owen once wrote this, Where there is not an inward experience of the effectual power of gospel truths in their hearts, those living under the profess, profession of religion, regardless of what they profess, are very near to atheism or at least exposed to great temptation in that direction. This is an apt description of those religious leaders that Herod consulted. They were completely satisfied with their own goodness. They were completely satisfied with their own activity. They had no need to search out 
a life-altering, transforming Savior because they had done enough good on their own. And I think, now here's why I say I think this is particularly helpful for us this time of year, because I think this time of year is a great time to evaluate how we're doing in some areas. How are we doing as parents? What a great time. You know, we're, we're turning the corner on the year, entering into a new year. Why not think through, how am I doing as a parent? How am I doing as a father, as a mother? How am I doing as a neighbor, as an evangelist, somebody who tells others about Christ? How am I doing as a servant in Christ's church? How are we doing in our participation in the gathered church, Christ's body? How are we doing in our time in God's Word? We'll talk more about that next week. In, in, in our time in prayer, our investment, our financial investment in the kingdom. These are all necessary considerations. And this may be the best time of the year to, to, to look at those things. But all of those activities are actually a means to an end. They're not the end. The reason we do those things is so that we can, as our mission state, treasure Jesus more, love God more, love neighbor more, so we become like Jesus together, so we can see God glorified as His kingdom advances through the proclamation of the gospel. So yeah, so for, for some of us, we may just say, you know, I need to spend more time in reading the scriptures next year. I need to spend more time in prayer. But remember, all those things are a means to an end, and that is that we might glorify and enjoy God forever. Now, I want to look at one more response here. And that's the response of the Jewish people. Herod tells the wise men, hey, when you find Jesus, when you find this, this king, you know, let me know where he is because I want to worship him too. But of course, he doesn't really want to worship him. That's not why he wants to know. He wants to kill Jesus. This is not surprising. If you know, you've studied any history, you know about King Herod. We talked about him again a couple of weeks ago. He was a maniacal sociopath, killed you know, parts of his own family. Um, this is a guy who made Charles Manson look like kind of a normal, everyday not guy, a guy you want to live next door to. I mean, this guy was really, really corrupt, really evil. Um, but verse 3 tells us that not only was Herod troubled, but, he, but also so was all of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of speculation. Why would all of Jerusalem be so troubled? And I think the reason is that Herod, while a maniacal tyrant, he demanded little accountability of his followers outside of public allegiance to him. So as long as you professed Herod as the king, as long as he was the, the one that you worshipped in public, you know, he wasn't really monitoring a lot that was going on in people's private lives. He, he, he really demanded very little accountability outside of the public realm. And the people preferred a ruler that they, uh, they could live with rather than the king of kings who would sort of would inevitably demand accountability from all. Neither Herod nor all of Jerusalem wanted a king to whom they would be accountable. We shouldn't surprise us. People have always balked at the rule of God. Even people who say, yeah, I believe in God. I have no problem with God. They're okay with the idea of God. They're okay with the concept of God. But a God who actually, whose voice thunders from Mount Sinai, say, you'll have no other gods but me. A God who says, no, you will worship me and me alone. A God who actually orders all things by his providence. A God who, who demands and commands his people to obey. They say, well, wait a second. I'm not, I'm not so uh, inclined to embrace a God like that. People have always balked at God's authority. Going back to the nation of Israel who 
demanded a king rather than live under God's rule. Of course, you can go way back further. You can go all the way back to Adam and Eve, our first parents, who would not uh, be satisfied with what God had provided them. And the truth is, we're actually all born this way, fighting against God's authority. Now, So here's a shocking notion. We're actually a lot more like Herod than we think. We read about him and we think, oh, this guy, is, this guy is crazy. This guy is absolutely off his rocker. This guy was, was evil personified. We're a lot like, more like Herod than we think. And here's what I mean by that. It's our final point. In a spiritual sense, we come into this world as authority-threatened rivals of God. As the great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, there's a, there's, a, there's a constant refrain throughout all of hell, and everybody in hell says it. I am my own. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me whom to worship. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Don't tell me how to use my time. I am my own. We don't want anybody wielding authority over us. Now, if you don't believe that, just go home this afternoon and demand, tell your kids to do something. Don't ask them politely. Just demand it of them. Tell them, do this now and see the look they give you on their face. We don't want authority. We don't like demands. We, don't, we, we, we balk at law. We don't want to live under anyone's authority, under anyone's rules. And as we talked about last week, it's that animosity toward God that leads to all the trouble that we experience in life. Loneliness and isolation, guilt and self-loathing, fear and anxiety. We know it in our hearts. Something is wrong. We feel the burden of our own guilt. We feel the emptiness of our own pursuits. We know full well the loneliness and the meaningless that we experience, life apart from God. And all the TikTok videos in the world can never give us a purpose in life, can never give us a meaning for living. Well, the beauty of Christmas is that God came down in the flesh to live the life that we were called to live, not just to be born, of course to be born, to fully satisfy every perfect, righteous standard of God, to fully obey the law. In fact, I was thinking, I never, this never crossed my mind until this morning when I was reviewing my, my notes, and I, and I was reviewing that, that part I said a few minutes ago about the Jesus being probably two years old when the Magi reached him. And I almost, I thought to myself for a second about making a comment about the terrible twos, right? You ever had kids? But here's, here's the crazy thing, the incredible thing, the real thing. Jesus never went through the terrible twos. Like, I never had thought about that until this morning. He never went through, in other words, he was never disobedient. He never disobeyed a single command of God, a single command of his parents. Jesus was fully obedient throughout his entire life. He never sinned, never rebelled against God's authority. And the beauty of Christmas is that Jesus did that. He lived the perfect life. He lived the sinless life to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. To say it another way, in Christ, we have this offer from God to end our rebellion and be made right with Him, to experience this incredible union with Christ, to be united with God the Father, to be able finally to enjoy Him and to glorify Him with our lives.
But this requires, as we've seen this morning, requires approaching God, pursuing Jesus, as it were, with a level of humility, with a level of honesty, with a level of courage. Can we say courage? I think we can, like the Magi. It requires approaching Jesus with the integrity, the intellectual integrity and the openness that the, that the Magi displayed. Now, of course, theologically speaking, God's the one who does the pursuing. God's the one who draws, who drags, so to speak, who works in the heart, wrestles with the heart of sinners. But in a mysterious way, He calls us to seek Him. And, and the thing is, it's easy to be a cynic. Anybody can be a cynic. That takes no courage at all. I'm the son of a true hippie. I'm a son of a true cynic. You know, anti-establishment, anti-everything. It takes no courage to be a cynic. It takes no courage to be a skeptic. But it does take courage. It does take, again, intellectual integrity. It does take honesty to fairly consider the person and the claims of Jesus. And I know at Christmas time, even the day after Christmas, we may have folks and who join us maybe the first time. Maybe you're, you're a visitor with us. Maybe you're, you're hanging out with family this weekend and you're here with us for the first time or the second time or third time. And whatever it is, um, I want you to know the fact that you're here this morning is not an accident. It really isn't. Even if you don't buy into all this whole Christmas account and the virgin birth and angels appearing and magi traveling from thousands of miles away under a giant star... It's still, it's no coincidence that you're here this morning. God has you here for your good. And if you have the courage, if you're open to honestly considering the person of Jesus, if you pursue the true wisdom with an earnest faith, God will show you things that you never imagined. Things about the world, things about yourself, things about Him. As Tim 